0: Well, we have a series, at least for one night, with Jimmy Butler, one of the great games in NBA Finals history, pushing the Heat to a 115-104 win over the LA Lakers, and Butler handily outplayed LeBron James and Anthony Davis as well, and... I guess we just need to talk in greater detail about this incredible Butler performance before we hit on anything else.
1: Absolutely. And the basic numbers, 40 points on 14 of 20 from the field, all twos, no threes, 12 of 14 from the free throw line, 13 assists, 11 rebounds, some of those huge rebounds. Did have five turnovers, but when you have that kind of usage, totally fine. And it really was a tactical decision. There have been a lot of intriguing and important tactical decisions that have happened in this series for these two coaches and really what it came down to was the combination of the Lakers not wanting to leave Miami shooters and giving up some low resistance switches and so the basic the way to distill the Lakers game plan was defensively let's see if Jimmy Butler could beat us and in game three the answer was yes
0: Yeah, and we talked about it in the first half of the NBA cast that, as it turned out, there really are only two people on the Miami Heat who apparently can guard Jimmy Butler and ISO, and that's LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Now, let's keep in mind here that guarding Jimmy Butler and an ISO is under the conditions that the Miami Heat are providing. And for large swaths of this game, particularly down the end when the Heat pulled away and Butler was the big hero, the Miami Heat had Kelly Olenek... Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson all on the floor together, so three guys that you just absolutely cannot leave, including Anthony Davis having to guard one of those players, and then Jay Crowder is also a solid shooter in his own right. Or they go to Iguodala on occasion, but there was so much shooting, and you could tell that the Lakers were very, very concerned about the Heat three-point shooting. You never would have thought that the Lakers would be shooting way more threes than the Heat, but that has been the case through these last couple of games here, and. So when it was Butler going against Danny Green in the first half or getting Kyle Kuzma or Markeith Morris or Contavius Caldwell Pope, all players who have been solid defenders at points, but Butler was just plying through them. And he was also helped by an awesome performance shooting it from floater range, though these were largely short-term floaters. He also hit like some really difficult fadeaways from 13, 14 feet as well. And overall, Butler was four of four at the rim. He actually passed out of a lot of plays at the rim and set up i think 16 of the heats three-point attempts like basically half their three-point attempts came off of passes from jimmy butler Uh, but he was 9 of 12 on twos in the paint but away from the restricted area and his touch was awesome didn't even take a three-pointer only got forced into four jumpers outside of the paint and it was really just a, a virtuoso performance from him as a passer as a driver and then he's defending lebron james at the other end, although there was plenty of switching involved too, but uh, really just one of the best performances. We've seen the third 40-point triple-double in finals history, but the other two, as Butler uh, was aware of after the game, came in a loss. LeBron James and Jerry wass
1: On top of all of that, Jimmy Butler managed that offensive and defensive workload and played 44 minutes and 51 seconds. And... The reason he played forty-four, fifty-one is because the limited stretch where he sat in the first half, the Heat got absolutely shellacked. And I think Eric Spolstra basically realized that in this configuration, without Bam Adebayo, without Goran Dragic, they just need Jimmy Butler to be out there. They need. They didn't. The Heat didn't score a single point when Jimmy Butler was in the limited time he was off the floor. Is and that
0: true? Both of the since that he was out, they didn't score, huh?
1: I, I'd have to actually let me check it to make they, they were sure.
0: uh, i mean i can tell you this way you looked that up that they were negative nine in the three minutes that he sat you know a very uh joel and bead light particularly because he played 45 minutes exactly what joel and played in that uh that seminal game seven uh, last year uh in which butler participated as a member of the sixers interestingly enough
1: yep they didn't score technically the only point that was scored by miami when jimmy butler was off the floor was a kelly olenic free throw which what the foul occurred when jimmy butler was on the floor just he the, the second free throw was after the (laughs) sub so that's that's the only thing yeah they didn't score in the minute that he the the 55 seconds he sat in the fourth quarter
0: so The other thing that really stuck out was the heat defense in this game. I really thought that this was a, I mean, the heat offensive rating was really solid, you know, particularly what they did from two and considering that they actually didn't shoot it incredibly well from three, uh, but their strategy against the Lakers finally worked. Remember the Lakers made 25 of their first 28 two-pointers in game two and had one of the better finals offensive performances. In history, but they had a 105 offensive rating. And in this one, and it really was the Heat strategy that they just were not going to get beat inside again. And we saw it right away, particularly when Dwight Howard was on the floor, he had a, a real struggle, negative 15 and 15 minutes. uh So when they played with the two traditional bigs, that was a, a big problem. The Heat started Myers Leonard and he got the Keith Bogans, but he actually was plus 13, it met mostly matching up with Howard as they felt like. I think they just needed to get some traditional center minutes. it was best to use Leonard there but you know Leonard took up some space inside and the Heat just packed the crap out of the paint and it took the Lakers some time to adjust to that in the beginning particularly that first stretch when the Heat went up double digits in the first quarter and what was it Danny like at one point the Lakers had more turnovers than field goal attempts like six minutes yeah, in. it was
1: nine. It was nine to eight partway through, by like a fair portion through the first quarter, they had nine turnovers and eight field goal attempts, and it wasn't like they were getting to the line a ton. It it, it wasn't that though. They did. LeBron had a couple of and ones, so he ended up I think with a bunch of them the in, overall in the game. And yeah, the Lakers turned it over ten times in the first quarter, which resulted a in eleven Miami points. They got were able to get out some transition, a couple of pick sixes in there, but also that ten turnovers that was more than they had in Game Two in its entirety. They had nine in Game Two had 10 in the first quarter of game three and that was a mix of you know as it often is of of some some bad lakers execution but also a lot of great miami execution they were really pressuring anthony davis when he caught the ball and so the and so there were a couple where he got it and then it was stripped immediately there were they were making the the entry passes very difficult so lebron and ad each had four so that was eight of the ten and then dwight had one and danny green
0: had one and and ad by the way i think he had all of his in maybe like the first 18 minutes of the game, including a a really bad offensive foul that ended up putting him on the bench as well
1: right and that was the other huge part of Anthony Davis Anthony Davis that he really struggled overall did have a decent stretch towards the end of the third quarter but he only played 33 minutes in the entire game because he battled foul trouble in the first three quarters and I thought it was a even though he wasn't playing well overall you know the, the attacks that were happening and I thought some of that was also as you mentioned Dwight Howard being on the floor it made it easier for the heat to pack the paint and in the first half Vogel did not basically once Davis picked up his third foul then that put LeBron they put, they put LeBron in once Davis picked up a second in the first quarter and then Davis only played three minutes and 32 seconds in that second quarter where you know Miami it was it was it was basically even in that quarter so Miami had a you know they had a they had a small lead at, at halftime but I think that the Lakers could have pushed it then instead of it coming in the third quarter and so I thought that Vogel he was too cautious there And then because Davis isn't a particularly high foul player, he then changed course in the third quarter. Davis picked up his fourth foul, but then still played the full 12 minutes. And I I thought that was a much better approach.
0: Yeah, it was. And that was the the only decent quarter uh, that A.D. had in the third when Miami went up fourteen. And then AD kind of brought them back with with a, a flurry. It had a tip dunk in that period on on the back of Andre Iguodala. But really, I, I thought they just did such a better job overall of preventing Davis from getting the ball. We wanted to. Jay Crowder was fronting him in the post, particularly in the first quarter. They really just could not get AD post ups, and particularly with the other big on the floor, they did get a couple of Dwight Howard dunks off of this. But overall. Crowder was fronting him and then they had another big behind who was able to potentially be there if they lobbed it up. And, you know, Rondo got a couple of like spin lobs to him and stuff, but overall they did a really good job of preventing him from getting the ball and usually the lakers don't do this but they went away from anthony davis uh, and particularly in the fourth quarter where uh gibson piper half court hoops on twitter noted this that ad was basically not even involved in any significant action whatsoever in the fourth quarter and that was a a major problem for the lakers as well
1: i mean the way piper logged it davis was only davis did not have a single play run for him in that fourth quarter he was only involved in five actions out of the eighteen. or so possessions two post-ups and then three where he set a ball screen none of which involved lebron james and even if things aren't working super well for davis i think he has to be a higher proportion and it's not like lebron there were times where he was eating during that fourth quarter but then there were other times where he was he was forcing it a little bit was it was generating some tough jumpers and it wasn't it wasn't like this he was zero for three on threes for example in that fourth quarter and so giving it to Davis, lightening the workload, and, and something that we don't see super often, LeBron looked tired in the fourth quarter.
0: Yeah, that was really interesting. He had a couple of times where he didn't cross half-court, and perhaps it was the load early in the game where he had to come back in before his normal rest when Davis got his second, and then when he got his third, and just his overall routine that he was expecting was thrown off. And, I mean, I thought the play that really kind of encapsulated it was LeBron, on a fast break, and Kelly Olenek of all people sprints up from behind him and knocks it away. I mean, just not something that you expect to see. He had a couple of travels. On drives as well finished with eight turnovers uh and you know he was setting up plenty of three pointers certainly for the lakers and they were hitting a fair number of them um you know the number of corner threes that they took was insane in this game it ended up being 21 corner threes although tellingly none in the last five minutes but they were nine out of 21 on those corner threes but then five out of 21 on above the break a few of those were desperation as they were trying to come back at the end but i thought miami's plan in terms of helping a lot was really good uh they showed a ton of bodies in the paint they also had a much better plan defensively against lebron when they tried to involve smaller players they did not give up that low resistance switch that enabled lebron to get a a full steam ahead attack at the end of game one and then they played almost no zone as well against the lakers and the offensive rebounding was totally manageable they only gave up 11 which with a pretty unathletic team is not too bad at all it's only 24 percent offensive rebounds for the lakers so that was totally manageable as well as opposed to like the 40 percent that they gave up in game two and davis maybe just because he was in foul trouble he didn't feel like he could fight for position on the offensive glass but they also just in the zone it was much easier to lose track of davis and they just didn't do that this time jimmy butler tyler hero in particular i thought did a great job of flying in for defensive rebounds crowder who's never been a great rebounder got a few Uh, as well Uh, Alenic was much better as a box out guy in this game and they also just weren't giving up crazy penetration which then allowed the Lakers uh, to get on the offensive glass because it's much easier to offensive rebound shots at the rim and the Lakers I mean I think through like three quarters they had 12 shots at the rim or something and they finished up with very few of those so I, I thought that Pretty much every aspect of the defensive strategy and execution by the Heat was better. The Lakers spent the entirety of the fourth quarter. It seemed like trying to get LeBron a matchup on Duncan Robinson and the Heat wouldn't give it to him. They said, hey, you want to throw it to Danny Green or KCP or Caruso uh, as the role man? go ahead be our guest uh you know we're gonna either double team lebron or duncan robinson will stay there for a while but jimmy butler isn't going anywhere we're not giving up the switch and duncan robinson eventually once it was under control would just run back to his man and the heat did a great job of of defending so i really was very impressed by what they did um we got more to get to here let's take a quick break first though so what else uh, stuck out to you about this 115 104 heat win
1: the sheer volume of lakers corner threes i mean yeah yeah i
0: I talked about that a little bit i mean they're like, helping off the strong side corner. Um,
1: and, and Miami was conceding them, yeah. and the Lakers did. I mean, so they were 5 of 21 above the break, and then 9 of nine of 21. So 21 and 21, those two Those two proportions, and 22 shots of the restricted area. But, I mean, overall, I thought that the, the process was totally sound for Miami, especially, and this is the thing you have to underline in bold, when you consider their personnel that was available. And, like, yeah, it, ch- it changes. You can see different things when BAM is available. Hopefully that happens soon. We don't know if it will. I thought that Duncan Robinson, but maybe before that fourth quarter, his defensive limitations were more present. Like there were a couple plays where he was just a step slow and like even like couldn't keep KCP in front of him and some of that now. There's still so much gravity as a shooter like that we had a discussion. I think it was about six minutes left in the game about whether whether or not to pull Duncan Robinson like for Iguodala. They, I think they had like a six point lead at the time. And I said that I would just because of his, of his defense. And I think that Spo made the right decision to keep him in because that is what was being such a big part of opening Jimmy Butler was that there was nowhere that the Lakers felt comfortable, totally comfortable, aggressively helping. I think they should have been more aggressive helping anyway, but you do understand why
0: they were reluctant. Well, and particularly because late in the clock there are a couple of times when the Lakers were trying to show some more bodies against Butler like Caruso had one time uh, off a of hero for example and so Butler saw that and very James Harden like just gunned to pass immediately to hero and Caruso just got caught flat-footed and couldn't quite get back there and they got a an open three right at the end of the clock that that hero hit uh so that, that was a huge shot for the heat as well and, and even Duncan Robinson I think he got one more in the fourth and so just between Linux Robinson and hero they felt like they're There weren't guys that they could leave. And uh, I mean, I I guess the question is like, this is a pretty good Miami offense. I mean, with Butler playing this well, he's not going to shoot this incredible percentage from floater range again um do you feel as though they shouldn't have just switched lebron james off of jimmy butler when someone else went over to set the screen in those last five minutes
1: i think that you can challenge jimmy butler is not lebron james in terms of if you go under on him he's going to get ahead of steam and he's going to be unstoppable so yeah i think i think they should take a page out of the heat playbook and say well, i mean a little bit of just like we'll can we'll give you something else though i think it would be dropping below i think that's the way to do it and jimmy's you know pulling the pulp jump shot is not really a strong part of his arsenal at this point and focusing on what a guy does well and what a guy does poorly i think generally yields pretty good results
0: yeah so i think certainly they could try that it, you know the, that's probably i think part of the problem was it was the exact same look for jimmy butler on every possession as it was in game two when he also was able to get to the rim quite a bit and bully some guys uh you know i, I think you would have hoped that danny green could guard jimmy butler and that lebron wouldn't have to do it for the whole game And that may have contributed to some of the fatigue that LeBron felt, but Green had his second straight miserable three-point shooting game. He was 0-4, for 0-6 for in total. KCP, it was only one out of three. He didn't get a lot of looks from three either. So it really came to Marquis Morris and Kyle Kuzma, who were a combined nine out of 19, most of those being from the corners uh, that they took and both those guys had 19 points but you absolutely can deal with that if you're the heat morris and kuzma taking 13 shots davis taking nine and lebron only taking 16 and this is what we worried about with the lakers that their shooting wouldn't be quite good enough and yeah you know it wasn't an atrocious three-point shooting performance but considering how wide open most of these looks are 33 percent is probably not good enough and not good enough to make the heat change their strategy and so if the lakers maybe can at least avoid turning it over and just set up those threes without turnovers that would be good they also didn't get a ton in the fast break compared to what they've gotten at at times previously you know it didn't you didn't have just those like crazy heat turnovers leading to runouts like you've had at times in the series so i was uh really impressed by the heat strategy and to do it with Hero, Olenek, and Robinson as three of your main guys all out there together, and Myers Leonard as well. I mean, that's that was impressive to just say, hey, we're not going to stop him. We're not going to let him get anything inside though. And we'll give up threes, we'll give up threes, but that was the right strategy. And uh, especially if you keep in the half court, you can execute that even with the perhaps middling defensive personnel.
1: A couple other elements of this game that I wanted to discuss. Uh, Kendrick Nunn, had a bad slip and uh, we're not exactly sure what caused it, but uh, I was concerned that he might be out for the rest of the game. He ended up coming back and none wasn't fantastic, but the the heat needed other players who could penetrate, who could, who could, you know, break the seal. And I thought that none did that. He had a couple of rough possessions on offense and defense, but it was good to see him back on the floor. Rondo had a couple of, a couple of crazy finishes, but those were his only makes in the game. He had that one that looked, it looked for a second, like it hit, like, like it, it it hit kind of the fringe of the top of the backboard, and then another one that had a lot of English on it. But those two finishes around the room were his only makes. He missed three three-pointers and, and had a couple other tough ones, though Rondo did have five assists.
0: Yeah, four points, two of eight from Rondo in 28 minutes, uh, and you know, he was so good against the zone in, in that game too. But you know, he didn't. He threw a couple of nice, really lob, lob passes—one to AD, one to Howard on, on those quick spin moves. But yeah, he did not do nearly as much in this game. We also—I I thought another place where the Lakers really could have done better was they went to a very odd unit at the end of the first half with AD on the bench where they didn't even have Marquis Morris out there either it was just LeBron at center and LeBron just didn't have the horsepower to be like a primary rim protector in this game given the offensive load that he had and I really thought they probably should have gone back to Dwight Howard maybe with that group. Although I guess part of the problem is when Linux is out there, where does Dwight Howard hide? And the Heat also went to a smaller group uh, at the end of the first half as well. And and that's part of why I'm sure the Lakers did that. But Butler really got going at the end of that first half because they just had no rim protection at all. So uh, this Heat team is really hard to guard. And the Lakers have tried switching a lot, but that still leaves... Your help defenders guarding really good shooters and allowed Butler to go one on one. So I want to see what the strategy is going to be. I I imagine we'll see maybe some more doubles in Game Four to get the ball out of his hands a a little bit. You know, assuming the the fact that he's got 45 minutes two games in a row is pretty tough. So well,
1: and remember uh, these are uh, every other day, and the next game is every other day too. Uh, Another important frustration for both of us in this game, you know, doing the live show was the Lakers' truly terrible transition defense. Now, Miami is only credited with nine fast break points, but that's because they missed a ton of open threes. As the NBA defines it, the The Heat were four of 12 on fast break shots, and a lot of those were wide open threes that just, just went wanting by a little bit, and the Lakers didn't know who they were guarding. Maybe somebody didn't get back, and they and they dodged a lot of bullets there. They ended up getting hit by a bunch of other, you know, like in like the Jimmy Butler floater range, but they need to clean that up, especially if Bamco, comes back at some point
0: yeah and that was really i mean i thought where the lakers were not as locked in defensively they didn't give up as many of those quick slips to the rim as they did in game three and they defended poorly in or i'm sorry in game two they defended poorly in game two uh i thought and just their offense bailed them out and the fact that the heat weren't going against uh or were going against the set defense a lot of the time bailed them out but you're right in this one i mean marquise morris was involved in a number of miscommunications particularly in the first half i thought the Their defense was not good enough. And any uh, adjustments stick out to you here, Danny? I already talked about changing the approach on Jimmy
1: Butler. I'm... I think that you you brought up a good point about like going you know not not being able to go big when when Miami goes small just because they don't have enough there and that's what's been interesting about having basically Miami going less to Iguodala at center is just because they actually have in some ways more of a competitive advantage when a is out there because of the the spacing that he provides is different in some ways than Iguodala. Um Oh, I also want to mention two ridiculous passes in this game. First, Rondo threw a another half court lob to AD, which was one one of the the baskets yeah. that AD had the- early. The
0: reverse dunk.
1: Oh, so nice. And then Iguodala threw a kind of fading back touch pass in the same motion to Kelly Olenek for a wide open three, which was absolutely spectacular.
0: Yeah, that was really, really good as well. From from an adjustment standpoint, the Lakers clearly need to do more to get AD involved. Uh, They didn't really have a plan early on against when he was being fronted and also their starting lineup is a little bit low on playmaking that puts a big burden on lebron and if kcp and danny green aren't gonna hit shots maybe it would make sense to start rondo or maybe Caruso to just get a little bit more passing on the floor to help out to get AD the ball. They also could do some more just old school style wedge screens, cross screens, just stuff like that to where you can get AD the ball on the block without him being fronted. Uh, That's something that they could, could look to do as well. James also did almost no posting up whatsoever in this game, and that's something that they could look to do as well, particularly when AD is off the floor. anything else stick out from like a rotational standpoint for you uh, with the Lakers
1: no not particularly I'm I'm trying to think I mean I still think there are limitations with the Rondo Caruso combination but I also don't know that there are any clear alternatives with Danny Green playing as badly as he's been so far and everybody else kind of being it's hard it's hard to think of another way to to solve that
0: yeah, well I think the for the Lakers defending better is a massive part of this yes. as well so then they can get out in transition and I mean they really have not defended even anywhere close to well enough they were great in game one but they haven't been anywhere close to that in, in these last two games so that's a, a, a big part of this potentially as well because i mean the lakers they had this on the broadcast that the first two games miami was within 10 points for one minute in the second half of the first two games and miami definitely had the conditioning advantage and that it came through even with butler playing 45 minutes down the end and miami has always it seems like and hollinger was has been at the forefront of pointing this out it seemed to do better than the other team at the end of games and so the Lakers need to be better in the first half because and we also noted the issues with their crunch time offense at times as well unless LeBron goes crazy with his jumper the way he did in game five against Denver then it's not as uh, viable for the lakers to be in a close game with these guys now obviously the lakers remain in command but the return of bam Adebayo, i think you know he had said to chris haynes that he planned to play in game three that didn't happen he was always listed as doubtful spolstra did say that he's feeling better but clearly you would think if there were any chance that he could have played they would have gotten him out there with that neck slash shoulder strain that has been reported as various different things both officially on the injury report and in the media so it doesn't seem like if that he's necessarily on a path to play. I'm not going to put it past him, obviously, but... Uh if he does play, then obviously that changes things a lot. Although it does, I will say this: I think it actually makes things much easier for Butler on offense if Bam isn't out there because then he's able to just be the one guy who's attacking inside, and he you know basically is setting records for points in the paint I- in this series. I think he had more points in the paint than he's ever had in his career in this game. So that's something to keep in mind. You know, short leash for Danny Green. I mean, he also doesn't look entirely healthy, so maybe you could just take him out of the rotation entirely. I don't think I would play jr smith five minutes uh although he did hit a three he also took a completely preposterous three-pointer in the right corner where he basically just like dribbled as hard as he could into the right corner and took a fadeaway three uh which maybe wasn't the greatest shot in the world and i think that's about all i've got here in in terms of adjustments now we just wait to see whether bam is going to be back or not and uh, i mean do you has this changed your feeling on the tenor of this series at all
1: yeah I mean, I thought that it was, you know, that we were, I, I talked about being dispirited after game two, because I thought Miami played a really good game and still lost. And so it was basically like, oh, well, we know where the series is going. And now I think it's more of a glimmer. I mean, it, because we still don't know if Bam and and Dragic are coming back and in what state they will be, because remember, it's not just being back. It's what, what, how are they playing? But a, this is a path defensively. I thought that he played really well. I thought that the strategy was good, the process, the results, all of that. And then offensively, I mean, they got it and then the more basic they had to win a game they won a game so yeah i think i'm thinking about it differently i'm not saying like miami is a favorite to win the series but their their chances of making this a long series i think went up significantly and their chances of winning it went up a little bit because they were really low
0: yeah and again need to be a thousand percent clear on this This is one of the greatest NBA Finals games that anyone has ever played by Jimmy Butler. Absolutely. I I mean, it was like, it reminded me of Steph Curry's 47-point game in Game 3 last year in a loss, but even more so, I mean, even a much better performance uh, than that was, and Curry had nothing around him. And and Butler has a lot of good offensive pieces uh, around him still, but the Lakers definitely just need to be more communicative. Anthony Davis did nothing on defense in this game because he was just uh, guarding shooters out on the perimeter. And I think uh, they... Should probably try and barricade the room a little bit more. Bring some help. At least show some different looks to Butler because it was. I mean, he he basically would might as well have just been playing one on one on who against whoever was guarding him and with no shot clock, just like working into the lane. He can do a spin move. He he was just was able to just dribble, dribble, dribble and know that no help was ever going to come. And you just if you're that good of a scorer, the same look every time, you're going to get used to beating it after a while. I'd right, take a quick break here and then we'll talk about the. Ball. Boston Celtics upcoming offseason. So Danny, why don't we start here with the fundamentals for the Boston Celtics as they head into this offseason having been vanquished in the Eastern Conference final?
1: Well, I think the most the kind of the most important thing to say at the start is that Boston won't be they won't be a cap space team in the summer of the fall of 2021 they will likely be over the cap and so that's something that ownership is going to have to deal with they could theoretically cut salary um but that would be a real challenge the other fundamental dimension kind of at the outset is that the Celtics have three first round picks four picks total they have 14 26 30 and 47
0: and that's where a considerable amount of the intrigue comes from with the celtics it's very difficult to imagine them using all three of these picks in the first round both because of potential luxury tax issues as we'll talk more about but also they have a bunch of young guys on this team already and you might say hey just use all of them get some guys in here and let's see whether they work out or not and the problem with that though is you've already got carson edwards on this roster for next year they're probably going to have semi they got grant williams they got robert williams they got romeo langford they got vincent poirier who maybe the, they would move potentially so you've got all these guys uh you know Javante green they might want to keep around as well they've also got tremont waters uh, on a two-way they are probably going to want to bring back brad wanamaker as well so they really when you look at it that gets them to 17 spots already and it would be 18 if they wanted to keep Javante green So some kind of a trade is going to have to happen in some respect. I mean, maybe that's moving Ennis Cantor and Poirier, and maybe they would even use one of those picks to facilitate that. And maybe you could also get back a player who fit better, do like a two-for-one trade plus the draft pick, something along those lines. But it really, or the other approach that they could try and make is trading one one or more of these picks for future picks. And that also kind of kicks the can down the road and gives you more trade ammunition. But the problem there is that people don't really like this draft that much. And so this is probably one of the few times where trading in this draft to trade back for a later draft actually could result in a reduction in value.
1: Well, and remember that one of the picks Boston picked up in this was a pick that they they, they basically did that move back. They had the 24th pick in 2019 and they used that to, they swapped that and aaron baines with to the phoenix suns in exchange for the the bucks pick which they had going back to the eric bledsoe trade i believe and so they they traded 24. yeah and that was
0: a bad trade right that's right. a perfect example i mean aaron baines who i think they kind of salary dumped him but i thought because they needed the space but i thought he actually you know was a, a valuable player and then they traded 24 for the bucks pick which was almost certainly going to be that or worse Uh, a year later. So that just shows you the kind of reduction that you might get uh, if you're trying to trade uh, a pick now for the future, particularly because teams know that they kind of really need to trade some of these picks.
1: Yeah, and unless, uh, unless a potential trade partner has somebody they absolutely love on the board at let's say 26 or 30, it's hard to really drum up that sort of passion. And I think there will be other picks that will be gettable in this range as well, especially with the, remember the rookie scale went up in the current cba they they made it stronger which i think is incredibly appropriate but that is, is something to consider and, and you brought up the roster spot crunch i think that's so important and remember that boston they don't really have much filler here they have players that either are a part of everything right now and they they have a pretty deep rotation or players that they fully intend on having be a part of their future you know like romeo Langford
0: and carson edwards and so carson the, edwards is probably expendable but he's but, he has a guaranteed contract for two more two years.
1: years right and they also you know like that. If that's more like the 15th roster spot, but we're not even at 15 if they keep all three of these picks the draft night oh, will, will probably yeah. be one of the bigger challenges though in Danny Ainge's offseason because they only have as of this moment one pending free agent that is Brad Wanamaker he's restricted only has a 1.9 million dollar cap hold however in an interesting kind of twist they could change that with Semi Ogilvy and Ogilvy it's the situation um, Nicole Jokic is the most prominent not that Ogilvy is anywhere near The level of player where, and uh, this will also happen with Mitchell Robinson potentially at, at, at another point, is you can either pick up a minimum team option and have them have the player for another year, and then Ojale would be unrestricted in 2021, or they can decline that team option, and that would make Ojale restricted this year. And so it is, in some ways, a it would be a bet for Danny Ainge on which market will be more robust. Also, how dedicated are you to keeping Ojale around? And also remember that I talked about how this is looking like it's going to be an expensive Celtics team with so much guaranteed money already on their books that... Ojala, you could lower your overall financial burden over the next couple of years, but you would be doing so by raising it this year, which would make their luxury tax bill even higher.
0: Another thing they could consider doing is... Trying to package all three picks to move up, but that obviously is difficult. Moving up, you generally have to pay a premium in terms of expected value. Probably the most similar trade that I could think of to this was the Kings had number eight in 2016, and the Suns had 13, 28, and Bogdan Bogdanovich, and they traded that to move up to number eight. So that shows you that you really need a lot of ammo. I'm not even sure that if they wanted to go from 14 into the top 10, that including 30 and 26 would be enough to do that. Maybe they they could also throw a player in at that point too, if they wanted to. I mean, maybe if there's someone at the lower end of the top 10 that they really want to try and grab. And that also serves the purpose again of just opening up more roster spots, saving money here by not having to make these picks. Because I mean, it is just a really tough pill to swallow when you're in the tag to draft 26th and 30th in a bad draft and then have at least two guaranteed years of those guys when we know they're going to be in the tax basically forever going forward uh and those guys are costing you five million dollars a year in actual cash that's pretty tough to do um we we also should just were you going to react to that first I was to no I,
1: it was part. it was a great point i didn't really need to have much to add
0: oh thank you uh so where they stand right now i mean here's the other thing too is. And we'll see. Maybe they'll get bailed out by the tax being higher, the cap being higher than we anticipate. But it just using last year's numbers, if they keep the draft picks and bring back Wanamaker on a pretty cheap deal, everyone sticks around, basically. Gordon Hayward opts into the $34 million that he's owed. They're $17 million over the tax with a tax payment of $37 million. And that is a big check to be sending to the league. Their team salary plus tax would be $187 million. And that doesn't seem like it's something that's necessarily realistic for this team to do and so uh, there could be incentives to move Cantor there could be incentive to move Poirier there could be incentive to move Carson Edwards they could not bring Ogilvy back uh maybe they even would move on from Langford as well who makes you know a little more significant money it makes a uh, 3.6 this year but they I would be extremely surprised maybe they would start the year like if they if the right deal isn't there for Vincent Poirier for example maybe they would start the year with him on the roster and then just pay cash in his salary and then you know do the Carmelo Anthony where you just keep him on the roster and then move him at the deadline because the other team doesn't have to pay as much actual cash for his salary and things could open up a little bit there but uh I would be very surprised if they finished the year more than 15 million dollars over the tax. Right, and, and probably less than that.
1: And something we haven't even mentioned here is that it, it's great. Boston doesn't have a ton of need for the rotational depth, but that doesn't involve using the mid-level exception at all. And right, that you know, sure, you could get somebody who could help. That's just that's generally the concept. And so it's it's a it's another challenge that Danny and Jess face just to get everything out there. Two two big player options on this team: Gordon Hayward, thirty-four point two. We all expect that he will opt in. In a different world, let's say you could transport this play this player option into the summer of twenty. 2021, knowing, and everything else is the same for Hayward, maybe he opts out, you know, gets, there are a lot of other potential suitors. He could get more long-term money. That money does not appear to be there right now. And so take, take the 34.2, hit the open market then. And then Enes Canner, kind of a similar story, 5 million for him. I think the center market is going to be absolutely brutal. This came, well, you know, like this came up with, we've talked a little bit about Robin Lopez when we did the big man preview a couple weeks ago. And so I think, I think all of those players should do that and it's not like Canner's in a terrible situation though Boston could move him to another team and I think they probably should if they can find if they can find a way to kind of get off of his money like they, it would be better to have him somewhere else and maybe there's a team with like a, a modest trade exception that's just like yeah, it's better better use and then it's kind of like a double MLE for some of those for some of those teams that you could just kind of do it but there aren't that many low value like modest value trade exceptions around the league like I don't think the Warriors would be interested and there's as much bigger
0: back to Hayward Hollinger and I talked about whether there could be room for him to opt out and extend with the Celtics. Uh, we talked about that pretty extensively uh, on last sunday's show and then there's also just the aspect that hayward might want to play it out and go somewhere else and just see whether he can reestablish his career as a big star which he's not really gonna have the opportunity to do if he is uh, in boston so that's something to consider oh here's
1: here's an interesting fact uh, an interesting theoretical counter destination i was looking at small trade exception destinations one of them is the portland trailblazers and if they're going to stay over if they're going to keep Trevor Reza, which is a distinct possibility, that might be a reasonable solution for them.
0: Oh, that is an interesting, particularly because Neil O'Shea absolutely loves Ennis Canner and he, he could give them some good backup center minutes uh, behind Yusuf Nurkic, although. I mean, I would probably target someone else there to try to get some wing help potentially. Maybe they could even go for a a sign and trade into that trade exception. But this is not the Blazers preview. A couple other things here on this. Well, let me frame this discussion here first, Danny. This is something we probably should have talked about at the outset. How would you just be thinking about this team in general, like how aggressive do they need to be are you just like hey let's not use all our powder now you know we've got Jalen brown we got jason tatum you were going to just contend for the next decade with those guys or are you feeling like hey you know gordon hayward is gonna is gonna leave kemba walker is getting older and jason tatum's max extension kicks in after this so we're not gonna be able to afford brown tatum walker and hayward if walker is even as effective as he gets older and he's already dealing with the knee issue and so we really need to just go for it as much as we can this season where are you between those two poles with this group
1: I'm worried about Kemba Walker's lower body you know like that I think that's the biggest question here it's not necessarily you know some of the I I think Tatum and Brown will be better later than they are now but Tatum and Brown are—I mean, Brown already is—and Tatum is about to be properly paid, and so Boston isn't going to have a ton of flexibility moving forward. So if if they feel confident that the Kemba Walker we saw in the playoffs was a little bit an aberration, that they think he can be more right in the 2021 playoffs, I would be a little bit aggressive there. I think that they it it would be hard—you know—Boston's going to lose some depth over the next couple of years. Marcus Smart is probably going to be properly paid. He will be an unrestricted free agent in 2022. Theoretically, they could agree to an extension with him. Next year, they can't not, they're not gonna do it right now. And so maybe there, there is something that opens up, but I think that you, I think what you do to me as Danny Ainge and that approach is you, you're ambitious, and if nothing meets that ambition, then you, then you don't really do anything crazy. But I think you're making those calls, and this is something I brought up. I did their offseason preview a little bit ago for The Athletic, is that the hardest part for range? For like you think about superstar targets and all this other stuff, is that it's extremely rare to be able to get a really good player that has a lot of team control. Like That's what makes the James Harden trade that Daryl Morey pulled off so special. Now, Harden hadn't established himself as that level of player yet, though many people thought it was coming. And, you know, like Anthony Davis was on the trade market. He had basically a year-plus left theoretically, maybe Giannis is there. Giannis would have a year left. And Paul George, you know, that had come up. And so, like, I don't think you make that kind of a move right now unless you get some sort of indication that that player is
0: going to be willing to resign. The other thing, of course, they have to be asking themselves is just what do they need to get better? I mean, clearly, the lack of force... Was a problem. And, you know, they generally don't ha- do a lot of helping uh, on this team and they expect guys to guard their man. They have great defenders uh, who can do that and they have a good team concept. But Bam Adebayo being able to go right through them and beast them in the East Finals is something that's pretty indelible. And then also, let's not forget that Giannis Anacupo is still in this conference uh, as well. And they match up extremely poorly with him. And Giannis, it, it, Toronto is a rumored destination. So there's a, a thought that they're going to have to deal with him for years to come whatever team he's on and so they really need to get a center who's got a little bit more heft than daniel tice as good as daniel tice was and so they have the ammunition i would think they've got the three draft picks they've got other young players they could use tice and Cantor and maybe poirier as some matching salary and perpetual trade candidate miles turner who's been rumored to potentially be on his way out in indiana that's one that they would look at, I think, pretty closely. And so, you know, would you be willing to do a uh, that deal and throw in some picks? They have all their own future picks too. Would Miles Turner help this team in terms of competing for a championship?
1: I think he would. I think that it would um, bringing that element. I mean, the the double theoretically of rim protection and three point shooting. So it wouldn't. And and, and Turner's not a high usage player, so it's not like that would fundamentally change like the way the ball is flowing through Tatum and everything else and I think he could pro- I think he could function offensively they're totally fine yeah I think that could be a worthwhile thing to pursue
0: yeah and I think Turner is actually underrated as a switch defender I think he can move his feet pretty well now he's terrible on the defensive glass which will, will be a perpetual problem for this team and his shooting is something that could potentially be unlocked he's a relatively smart player he could do a little bit off the drill there are many like us who think that he hasn't been well enough utilized in nate mcmillan's system and again i don't know how the pacers are feeling about moving him but there have been some reports that they may be looking to do so and in addition to Oladipo, who I don't think is really a fit at all in Boston. So, I mean, clearly the Celtics wouldn't want to trade Marcus Smart for Miles Turner. I actually think Marcus Smart is probably a better player than Miles Turner at this point in time with the way that he's improved to shoot the ball. Um, that's one to think about. Are there any other center trade candidates that come to mind? I've got not many.
1: Well, I mean, we talked about the Gobert possibility in the Utah preview.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one that comes to mind, obviously. Um, and you know, it does seem like Danny Ainge kind of has this weakness for like post up centers going back to like the David Lee era and Cantor. He really wanted to have on there and Jared Sullinger. And, uh, so that's obviously not what this team needs. They need someone who can play with some force defensively i mean maybe i would be very curious to just like these are the type of trades that never happen i guess the other thing actually i'm not even going to propose that one so never mind <laughs> uh, but you know maybe like trying to sign dwight howard and free agency to a low level deal would be something that they could look at um maybe someone like Jarrett allen is someone that they could look at as well although he's going to need an extension which is kind of a, a little bit of a problem there i i Andre Drummond finding the matching salary for him is probably too difficult that's kind of more of a trade deadline move anyway
1: yeah a Drummond trade I a Drummond trade. I had thought about Steven Adams that would both of those would probably have to involve Gordon Hayward
0: well and it's also tough because these draft picks if you don't roll them over for some future draft pick they're gonna suffer from driving the new car off the lot like there's no way the 26th and 30th picks are gonna play at all so they're not gonna be worth anything probably later they'll just be almost viewed as dead salary you would imagine um so yeah i mean i really think turner is probably the guy that you would be looking at uh, you know Steven adams makes too much money and he's not good enough i don't think you know, and, and there's really Lamarcus aldridge same thing i don't think he really does much for this team so i, I don't there's not really much else out there uh, other than miles turner to me to upgrade at center and so maybe they just go into next year with the pretty much similar cast of characters and make some moves around the margin i think that's what a lot of teams are going to end up doing
1: yeah and hope that robert williams develops and is healthier and all that and, and i think th- i think there is some real potential in, in williams as well and, and i think grant williams I, I can't be a full-time center but i think that he is a nice option and we saw him do do some really good things in the raptor series in particular i thought that there were times that he was really valuable and then they went to some switching stuff in miami in the miami series too
0: brad wanamaker is a restricted free agent and He's gonna be thirty. I thought he really took some steps forward and gave him some great backup point guard play. He's shooting the ball better. He's a tough, feisty defensive guard. What would your offer to him be in restricted free agency?
1: I hate that players like this have to be restricted free agents older, oh, older yeah. fines. It's it's infuriating. But I I mean, I would be thinking something in the like two and a half, three million a year range, probably if you could pull it off. I think that that Wanamaker will be squeezed. And I think somebody else could make him a, a richer offer than that. But Ainge has done such an incredible job finding value value at backup point guard go back to shane larkin i thought that they did a good job there and also they get a lot of shot creation out of non-point guards so i don't think they need to lean as heavily if the, if the electric tax is a real concern if ownership's willing to pay it then hell i'd go three
0: four million a year no problem yeah i think they would at least offer him like three million a year like uh th- probably what you would guess they would offer him and he to me is worth more than this but uh it's going to be a depressed market but you know three million with a second year non-guarantee like pretty similar to like what tj mcconnell got last year in indiana or alex caruso for example is 2.7 million a year for uh, two years like that's that's probably and those guys Caruso, at least, is restricted coming into that. McConnell was unrestricted. But that's probably what they're going to try and offer. And Wanamaker may end up just having to take that in the end unless he gets an offer sheet, which, you know, at his low level, he's probably not going to. And again, even though I think a offer, sheet,
1: offer sheets to these kind of like backup point guards could be a, a decent use of the middle-level exception for a couple teams,
0: or at least a portion of it anything else you wanted to talk about for these guys there's
1: one other thing we have to talk about and that's jason tatum's extension uh tatum especially when you consider that boston doesn't have cap space in 2021 the opportunity cost is extremely low so if theoretically if the benefit of getting tatum to sign now is that you get him for a fifth year without that player option that would be fantastic for boston tatum is an is an unquestionable max player with how he's how he especially how he closed this season and then so the big terms become what are the escalators if he gets onto certain all nba teams and i'm sure those will be intensely negotiated but i'm also very confident that a deal will get done
0: yeah i agree with you there and this is something that i think we talked about uh, on a past show but just to reiterate since anthony davis nobody who's gotten a rookie scale max extension has gotten a player option and tatum probably is the best player to get a max rookie extension. I think probably since Anthony Davis, actually, considering that Giannis didn't actually get the max, uh, which the Bucks, of course, are, are ruining right now that they didn't give him the five years in the extension. So I think that it's probably unlikely that he's gonna get that player option and then- Well, if you're if you're
1: Tatum, do you yeah. roll the dice and just say, I'm not signing it without it?
0: And this is a pretty good organization overall. And I mean, he's, he's set up to be the best guy on a winning team I mean, I, it's most of the guys who are in this situation You know, are kind of in the Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns situation where the team isn't good, and this team is good. He plays for a great coach. They've helped him develop exceedingly well. So I, I think ultimately I would be fine with the five years. Now I would fight harder on the... Particularly because he's really good, I would fight harder on those escalators and kind of what we've seen it be: Ben Simmons, Pascal Siakam. Where you know if you get third team, maybe second team, you'll get up to like 27.5. I think Joel Embiid was in this too, and then maybe you get the 30% if you get first team All NBA, which obviously at the forward position is exceedingly difficult to break into. But Tatum's certainly a a solid bet to make at least one All NBA team next year. Well, he's not going to make two, <laughs> but. <laughs> to to make an all NBA team if not first team be a better way to say that so i'm guessing that's kind of where it turns out 5 year deal you know maybe third team is 27.5 second team is 29% of the salary cap and first team is 30% of the salary cap something like that it is I mean he's he's got a lot of leverage you want to keep him happy they are going to have tax concerns going forward is the only reason they might want to fight on that a little bit but ultimately he's as i said probably the best player up for a rookie extension since Anthony Davis i guess Damian Damian Lillard would be in that category also actually but that was i mean those guys were both at the same time Davis yeah they were Lillard. all right so we'll take another break here and we're going to talk a little bit about uh OB- topping for you dunked on listeners uh, of course dunked on prime listeners already got that last week but i'm pretty sure his game hasn't changed too much over the last three days So we figured we'd give uh, those of you on the public pod a, a little bit of extra value as well and danny and i will return tomorrow talk to y'all then well first time in a while that we haven't really had a game to talk about so time to get into our usual stuff here we already did a few previews or i'm sorry a few scouting reports Lamelo ball james wiseman isaac okoro anthony edwards among them but we're going to get into obi toppin from dayton today and then talk about a fascinating offseason for the utah jazz potentially or an extremely boring one we'll explain more on that a little later but let's start with obi toppin and uh, what can you give us, Danny, just a general catch-up on him?
1: Sure. Uh, Toppin, the best guess on his measurements, six uh, nine, 220. Wingspan's probably around 6'11". Um, he's already
0: so So I, I saw 7'2", reported a couple of places. Okay, okay. Um, I,
1: I asked some people, and that was what I got. Um,
0: okay. So- yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't get one either. I mean, I saw 6'11", some places. There are a number of websites that had 7'2". Couldn't get a number on standing reach, in part because, you know, he hasn't been through Anywhere where he would have been officially measured before right. this time. Right, and,
1: and I think that's a, a notable part of the Top Topin story. So he's from Bushwick, Brooklyn, and got zero D1 scholarship offers. Then he did a post-grad year in Baltimore where he grew four inches, and then he got offers. Went to Dayton, redshirted, and so, and then was arguably the national player of the year. So that is an exceedingly unusual path to this point. Topin averaged... 20 points, seven and a half rebounds, 2.2 assists in 32 minutes per game as a Dayton Flyer, and so I mean those stats. When you, especially if you look at like a 30, basically a 32 per, 68 percent true shooting on 28 usage, like some of the some of the numbers absolutely pop off the page with him.
0: Yeah, and worth noting as well that he is 22. Uh, as you mentioned, he kind of had two years. Before he even really started his college career. And so was a a 21-year-old freshman last year. And now uh, age 22. So that's worth considering as we try to project him out. Uh, Of course, you mentioned the fact that he's grown. And this is really his first season on the big stage. Came into this year being talked about as a late first, early second round draft pick. Immediately exceeded that. Started getting talked about in the top 10 pretty quickly. And Dayton, uh, of course, had a wonderful season. As well, so why don't we just start here by talking about like what he is, like what position is he in the NBA? Do you think
1: it wouldn't surprise me if whoever drafts Toppin runs into a John Collins esque problem, where you would love for Toppin to be good enough defensively to play center, because that would open up so much offensively for you. You know, with his ability to space the floor, he shot thirty nine percent on about three threes per 40 minutes and that would be amazing if he could do that from the center spot but i don't think he has the the chops physically to be either a switch defender or a lead rim protector shot deter shot blocker at the next level so yeah in backup units and all that i think that he can you know maybe he can dabble in it a little bit but to me he looks like a four because he can't be a five
0: yeah he has the bounce Maybe the wingspan, we don't know what the standing reach is to possibly any, he, he can really jump uh, as well. So there's some thought that, you know, maybe if he really got it together, like people have played center with similar physical tools to him, that's I think that that's reasonable to say, but certainly I don't think he is a natural defender. The shot blocking numbers, not amazing. 36 blocks. So essentially won a game. Uh, in those 32 minutes, as you mentioned, played 31 games. And uh, so I I think you you really initially just run into the problems with him of what he is defensively. And so I thought John Collins was an interesting comp. Another one for me was, although I I don't think he's going to be as good as this guy offensively, but Marvin Bagley, another one of these kind of 4.5s in today's game, a little too thin. Not necessarily physical enough. Don't necessarily have defensive instincts. Well, but actually, that's you what kinda, I wanted.
1: That's where I wanted to get yeah. to. Is, is for me. It didn't seem like Toppin could predict what was coming. And remember, he's playing in the A-10. There is a pretty big jump in athleticism. Now, Toppin will have time to adjust to NBA-caliber players, but he doesn't have great timing, doesn't have great instincts, and that's a lot to ask. And then the other thing, which is relevant on both ends of the floor, so one of the games I watched was when they played Kansas. And now, Udoka Azubuki is an absolute monster, like physically. Like that's that's not Azubuki's yeah. sweetest, but absolutely absolutely manhandled Toppen. And remember that the big men that are still good enough to play center in the NBA, if the idea is that Toppen is a starter, those guys are bears. You know, Nurkic and Jokic and Joel Embiid and even Rudy Gobert. And I think all of those those players in their back to the basket game, unless Toppen gets stronger and shows more resistance, I thought he had too many give ups in that Kansas game as well.
0: I thought you mentioned his defensive instincts. One of the plays that I thought was the most interesting was he had this spectacular shot block and a driving guard at the end of the first half. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. We haven't seen too many of those. And then they showed the replay. And the way he got over to provide that help was the big man who was guarding him just like shoved him right into the direct or or, sorry the big man that he was guarding shoved him across the lane i guess to just try to open up rebounding position or something and just shoved him like right into help position so he could get the shot block like he wasn't moving that way before he got shoved um so i i mean i I think we've got some limitations here uh on top and and maybe we're going too far into the negative it's probably important to just talk about Really what his strengths are, you know, in addition to the statistical indicators that you mentioned. I mean, I think he is a really just gets up for some massive dunks. I mean, he's throwing down like windmill tip dunks. He's dunking it from odd angles around the rim. He can go and get alley-oops. I mean, he's he really... You know he's, I wouldn't know if he's quite like a Blake Griffin type of dunker, but he's probably like the next level down from there. I would say, uh, you can do it off of one or two feet, but particularly off of two feet. I mean, the guy is really, really explosive. And then, you know, he did shoot pretty well from three over the course of his uh, career, a 42 percent three-point shooter in his career 43 out of 103 over the course of two seasons so i think the case is you know john collins is an interesting comp as you mentioned for him that he just is going to be a really good finisher around the rim in pick and roll and that he he can pop out to three and hit shots as well i mean i think that's the the rosiest case of what he's gonna be on offense would you agree with that
1: the other Big positive that you didn't mention is that Toppin runs the floor hard. And so I sure. think that he has good straight line speed. I don't, I like him more straight line than lateral. Not a surprise, especially, you know, like guys straight line and vertical, you know, that's a, a, that can be a somewhat common combination. I think of like Gerald Green maybe in that, not that Toppin is the same size, but you know, that idea of a guy who can do two things, but not all three. And he runs hard. So that effort, you know, I think that he could be a, a very useful player for the, Contest and run all the way down the floor and and get a dunk, get a pass. Like, especially if there's somebody who can do hit aheads on on Toppen's team, that would be wonderful. Um, also, I really liked in the overall offensive film, and this was true both in the high level stuff in the Kansas in the Kansas game, so against real competition. I also watched a game against Richmond, Richmond, the number two team in the, in the A10, but not you know not ridiculous. Was that Toppin did a wonderful job when he got extra attention. I thought that he he made good decisions as they passed he doesn't force the issue so my question there is so so like there, there are a couple elements of Toppin's game and I think this is the most important one where if he were theoretically like let's say he grows his game in some way that we're not anticipating he actually has like that other sort of scalability stuff you know like that he can he makes good decisions he, on offense he has some of these like he can make good passes he has you know especially if he's playing power 40 he has decent size and so you see all those things it's just will he generate the extra attention at the next level and that I'm more dubious about but if he does I think it could work out well.
0: Yeah, I'm a little more dubious actually even about his passing ability than you are. I think I mean he did throw some nice passes, right? Like Kansas their strategy was they're double teaming him every single time he had one nice play where he threw it all the way to the weak side. Uh one of the things that I noticed is a lot of times he will see the pass but he'll either see it so late that the window is closed and he just throws it right to someone or he'll the pass will be off or it'll get deflected and he ends up turning it over. I mean, I think he's definitely a willing passer, but I'm not sure that I would consider that to be a strength of his yeah. game. Yeah,
1: I, I will say, I will say, like it's for me, it was more the approach that he didn't get hurried and that he was okay with. Sure. It. Like in the Kansas game, he didn't take his first shot until 5:45 remained in the first half because they were doubling him on basically every possession. And like that's for a for a star player at the college level, that's a good thing, you know. Like if if they're generating decent offense, and he also like doesn't get tunnel vision. But no, I don't think he's like a preternatural passer or anything like that. It's just I, I liked that part of it because there are a lot of good players Anthony Edwards that that don't do that step of oh like you know this is what Jason Tatum is dealing with right now at the NBA level is I'm getting the extra thing that makes the transition to oh I need to get mine to I need to get it to other people because there is an advantage due to the attention that I'm creating
0: yeah but as you alluded to he's not going to get double teamed at the NBA level so it's not going to matter probably
1: not (laughs) um
0: (laughs) um Uh, yeah i I mean yeah
1: i was thinking about kind of like this is a small thing on his offensive game but i'm going through my notes on the kansas game he pushes off a lot i'm funny i just invoked jason tatum
0: oh i i got i got a lot more on that actually uh that that ties in with the with a big theme sure that that i have but yeah i mean i don't think i wouldn't consider him i mean he's definitely just not a natural basketball player i mean if we and not surprising given his pedigree the lack of high level experience but you know, I mean, I think he can kind of, he's kind of built in a lab and I think he can kind of hit the buttons on the controller when he knows what's coming. But in an improvised situation, I don't think he's going to do very well. So, you know, if it's like, all right, getting the ball on the short roll, making a decision, I don't think that uh, that's something that's going to be a strength of his game. And then uh, another thing too, we started talking about him potentially getting double teamed. and you would hope, all right, you, you know, is he going to be a good post-up player? And the numbers on that were not bad, but I think his post game is poor for a number of reasons and is never going to be a strength at the NBA level. I mean, number one, I don't think he really has any post moves. He doesn't have the feel really for like spinning off of guys necessarily. Um, You know, he's not even really like elevating for a turnaround jumper. We didn't see a ton of face-up game from him either. Every once in a while he would face up and I thought, his first step was good, although then the guy could catch up after that first step a few times. And, you know, as after the initial rip through, he doesn't really shoot like a turnaround or a fadeaway or anything. He'd kind of spin into a hook shot that always seemed to be contested. And he had like okay ish touch on those, but he wasn't getting great extension. He wasn't really shooting it uh, with one hand, getting his body in between the defender. He had to kind of lean into the guy and shoot it awkwardly. And, uh, the biggest thing as well was he just can't get any kind of position against right. smaller players. Like they get underneath him. Uh, and this is in the A-10, as you mentioned, right? I mean, these are, you know, just schlubs. You're looking at this guy and you're like, man, he can't like put this guy in the goal. And, you know, he's he is a very high waist. And I guess I can get into this now just in terms of his physical profile. He is one of the stiffest players that I've ever evaluated just in terms of like his flexibility core strength ability to get into a stance Uh, and it was interesting like my wife is a yoga instructor and does a lot of working with clients who have uh, all sorts of movement problems and she's studied a lot of anatomy and it has to come up with ways to help people who really have like kind of these movement deficiencies and she was like yeah like I, I totally understand why you had me look at this guy like I could probably really help him actually uh but like it was uh, his just total lack of hip flexibility. He's got like a really kind of tight chest. His his arms go forward. It's kind of like a Zan and Musa-esque hunched shoulders. And if you watch him defensively, he can't get low defensively and slide his feet. He definitely can't get low on offense to carve out position. And then also his core strength, uh, part of what made me think that his core strength was low in addition because that's a a big part of being able to carve out space is when he moves he's really totally out of control and off balance whenever he tries to change direction you'll see him swinging his arms wildly he's not really in control he'll kind of stumble a lot as he's trying to change direction he can get off balance he seems very top heavy you'll see his torso kind of keel over uh, like almost over rotate uh, over the lower half of his body when he tries to stop and change directions so yeah you mentioned you really like him running in a straight line but any kind of lateral stuff it seemed like and, and he does have a pretty good wingspan and pretty good athleticism so you know he wasn't getting killed in like isolations or anything in fact those numbers were quite good but in terms of just actually sitting down in a stance I mean he just can't get his butt low well, in any way now you yeah know, you
1: know this far better than i do do you is your instinct that that those things can't can be like can they be improved can they be fixed like you know you know they're different levels like you he can obviously get better yeah. like you can get better core strength but he needs a long way to get to like
0: good yeah i mean at coming up as he has you know it's unclear how much work he's actually been able to have with his, people who know a lot about this i'm not sure you know what the strength program is is like At Dayton for example and you know he's also come a a long way already he he was a late bloomer in terms of his growth and there have been players who are able to improve their flexibility a lot Giannis is one of those actually who's really uh, when he got in the league and you'll see that a lot with kind of skinny guys who have just grown just having very very tight hips and not being able to get low and Giannis is someone who's really improved with that although you know he even he still kind of has problems moving people and that's And you mentioned how he shoves off a lot, and that's another indication that you kind of don't have the core strength, right? You're not moving guys, so you feel like you have to shove off. And even Giannis these days will still shove off a a fair amount um, because you're getting knocked off balance and you're not beating guys, and so you feel it's just a natural instinct to shove off. with that off arm
1: and on the idea of hip flexibility one of the things that was most concerning was the film of him as uh, in pick and roll defensively because his short his short area speed was really bad it it was the combination of a couple things like he had his instincts aren't great he wasn't able to recover well and he doesn't he doesn't start his movements particularly well so i thought that was a real problem and so i one of the one of the things i had my pnr section was what scheme would make the most sense with it because i'm just like none of this works
0: yeah, and, and it's it's the change of direction in right. particular that's not bad. So I think he could definitely get better sure. with that. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past him. Uh and he does have a lot of jumping ability and a lot of straight line speed once he gets going. But some guys also are just they're athletes in terms of jumping and running in a straight line and they're not athletes laterally necessarily. Um and you know, there's been a lot of players like that. It's not just you're a good athlete or you're not a good athlete. There's some things people are good at and some things people are bad at. And yeah, it, that's really the the question you you talked about his rim protection. But then yeah, his pick and roll defense as well, or being able to switch. And so if you're looking for a role for him defensively, it's not like oh you just put him at the four and he'll be fine there either.
1: Right. Uh, I, so I want to I want to jump to a different thing, which I thought was it was both reflective of Toppin's dominance in college, but also not reflective of what he can do in the NBA. So it's a play in the Richmond game where Toppin got the ball at the top in transition. He pump faked a guy in the air, but he drove into three guys and got a layup, missed the layup, and then tip dunked it on on them. And it's like, okay, that was very nice. It was was an interesting highlight, but that's never, ever, ever going to work in the professional level when everybody is a significantly better athlete than the best athlete on the
0: floor. No, I agree with you. And again, just the, the inability to back down against uh, even guys at that level, um, I I think it is an issue. And and so he didn't play that many games against the highest level of competition. I mean, the A ten is like okay. I I can't say that I follow the A ten that closely, but you know, it's not like there are a ton of big man draft prospects coming out of that conference this year that he was going up against. Um, so I I mean, it's really. I hate to be so down on him uh, because he is a a really good story, but it's just other than dunking around the rim and potentially shooting. I mean, maybe that's the next thing we should talk about, but I I was going to finish that thought that I don't know what else he'd be good at besides those two things in the NBA. But where do you stand on his shooting?
1: I thought that his shot looked good mechanically. I thought that Toppin, you know, 39% on threes, 70% on free throws. You wish that was a little bit higher if you really sold on him being a legit shooter. But I liked Toppin's catch and shoot form. And it doesn't seem like going from the college line to the NBA line will be much of a problem. He, he took some deeper threes and the mechanics seemed just about the same. That's not really a problem. Uh, he had, so if you want to go with spot ups, Toppin had a 1.5 points per possession on 42 no dribble jumpers. And then he was uh, 1.16 on catch and shoot overall. But that's because he struggled on some pick and pops and a few other things. So, I, I yeah, t-
0: seven out of 26 on pick and pops i mean i guess that that's your other thought right is that he would be a role man but if he's not the center it's kind of hard for him to be if he's not the center defensively it's kind of hard for him to be the role man offensively and you know the pick and pop is that's a harder shot than a straight spot up but you know the fact that the numbers were lower there again small samples so you don't want to bet the farm on this but that that is is a little more troubling because really to succeed he's gonna have to be like a big plus weapon from Beyond the arc, I would say. Well,
1: especially because Toppin's going to be limited defensively. So a versatile jump shot, being a role man. And like there's this idea I heard heard from somebody about potentially the comparison to Dwight Powell. But Toppin has more offensive upside. But I I think that he doesn't—I mean, it's going to take some work to get to where Dwight Powell is. And Dwight Powell is one of the best role men in the league. And Toppin was not at that level as a role guy in the A-10 and Powell was doing it on the Mavericks before he got
0: hurt. Yeah, and the situation for Toppin, I think, was pretty good, too. You know, but By the end of the year, he was playing a fair amount of, if not center, the hub in a four-out or five-out system. Everything was running through him in terms of handoffs and pick-and-rolls, and then he was trying to get quick slips to the rim or the guy would turn the corner on the handoff and then he would just hang out at the three-point line and shoot a shot. So most of what he was doing that looked good was being set up by other players. I mean, the self-created stuff really just didn't do it for me at all. Um, You know, I didn't think he's really great driving and attacking a closeout either and making a decision. Uh, You know, he could dribble it a little bit and put a couple of dribbles together. He had one play in the Kansas game. Where he kind of again, it was like hitting the buttons on the controller where he took a dribble, dribbled behind his back, and then hit a three, which looked really nice. But you wouldn't see the like a reactive fluidity to him when he wasn't just sort of like lining the pins up and knocking them down with a move. Um, I don't know what else you got here I, I think I'm kind of well what, is it a way that it's I pretty is, obvious what I'm thinking here a way
1: that I think is a is a good kind of clear like clarification exercise on players is so I want to do three different categories one is star starter and bust and what I want to do is what that would look like and the likelihood of it happening so I don't see very much of any star potential with Toppin I guess what it would look like is that his that athleticism gap you know the core strength and all that 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 is just lack of training and that working hard gets through all that and that he can be a version of a small ball center the jump shot is real but even that player you know maybe dream you're hoping that he gets to average on defense would have to be unbelievable offensively so i don't think star potential is there the path to starter is basically the same it's that he's really good offensively and then salvageable defensively i would say that's possible but far far from probable and then bust i mean i guess for bust it's just he you know the the offense. There's not enough versatility to Toppin's offensive game. His defense never really comes around, so you can't play him at center. Can't really switch too much, so you don't really want to play him at the four. And he just—he's just kind of a man without a country who isn't good enough. You know, like you could think of somebody like Lou Williams. Like Williams is a man without a country defensively, but he's so good offensively that you keep that the Clippers had him on the floor in important moments on a playoff team. I, I, that, and if you're below that level of awesome, it's very hard to make that happen. And I could easily see that occurring with Toppin.
0: Yeah, particularly if he is like a 32% three-point shooter. And he had a lot of bad misses, I thought, as well. And he shoots kind of this set shot with a casual approach where he didn't always have his feet set or or he would not have the greatest of shot preparation. But combined with the 70% free throws and... some of the really bad misses that he would have. Like, I don't think he's going to be that consistent. You know, I think he's going to be a 33% three-point shooter, and he's not going to have a ton of versatility to it. So, ultimately, I mean, you just, you think of the comps for him as well, right? Like, Marvin Bagley and John Collins are kind of like the good comps to me, and he doesn't have that level of post-up ability. He doesn't have that level of offensive rebounding to me. Uh, he He doesn't have that level of feel. I mean, I think he's going to be a better shooter than Bagley. And Collins really developed into a better shooter. But let's also remember when those guys came out, they're 19, 20 years old. He's 22 already. I'd feel a little differently if we're talking about a 19-year-old here. And, yeah, you got a late start, but still 22 is 22. And so that's a major concern. Not having a position defensively is a concern. And to me, he I think actually another possible analog for him is – early career Marquise Chris. And Chris has now found a second home at 22. Uh, Basically, he's the same age as Marquise Chris now, despite the fact that he drafted four four years later uh, because Chris was very young when he was drafted. And Chris has actually developed some decent passing feel. And, you know, I would say Chris is probably even a little bit more explosive than Toppin, although Toppin might be a little bit longer than Marquise Chris. And I would say they probably have like similar shooting ability so, I, I think it's really off the bench, undersized center who can be a rim runner and hope he doesn't kill you offensively or defensively because he's going against backups. Like, that's what I see as the most likely outcome uh, for Toppin at this point in time.
1: Yeah. For those who want this as a reference, Marquis Chris, born July of 97, Toppin, March of 98. Yeah. So, not that far apart.
0: Last thing I'll say on him, too, I, I thought that just some of his body language was a little troubling and i don't want to overstate the importance here but a lot of clapping for the ball showing up his teammates oh a, i had one that a drove me bit. crazy
1: with that at the end of the kansas game the the dayton was down three toppin was posting up and calling for the ball and i'm just like oh my god <laughs> maybe he didn't know the score maybe he didn't know how much they were down and i just went completely crazy
0: yeah. And he kind of seemed like a little, a little bit of like, kind of like a little bit of a front running, like kind of shit talker to, to the other team, uh, just, a, and, and, you know, a guy who, again, doesn't have a lot of high level of experience, doesn't quite have the, like been there before calm to him. So I, I don't consider that a significant component, but it is something that I observed, All right, thanks again for listening to this free episode of Dunktown. If you haven't subscribed to Dunktown Prime, the off-season is coming up. Give it a shot. Link is in the show notes. Just try it out for a month or two. See uh, whether you like it or not. We're a little bit different format, but still uh, all of your old favorites. Mock-off season's coming up. You're not going to want to miss out on that, obviously. And also highly recommend listening to the episode I posted on the Dunktown feed yesterday with Dr. Carl Bergstrom. I should say revived COVID Daily News in which we talked about all the crazy intrigue Iran, the president testing positive for COVID 19 still holds up pretty well here a, a day later with the news that's happened today. In fact, uh, we're prescient about some of that news. In fact, touch y'all next time.